This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, John Savage, author of the seminal history of punk, England's Dreaming, on his new book, 1966, The Year the Decade Exploded. John Savage is the author of England's Dreaming, Sex Pistols and Punk Rock, and Teenage, The Creation of Youth, 1875 to 1945. He wrote the award-winning documentaries The Brian Epstein Story and Joy Division, as well as the feature film of Teenage in 2014. And his latest book is 1966, the year the decade exploded, which we're going to talk about now. John, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. 1966, is is there much more to say? What's the idea behind this book? Well, the first idea is to celebrate the music. And the second idea is to actually do a proper bit of history and go back to primary sources and actually find out what people were thinking and feeling in 66 from direct source. There's been so much written about the 60s. It's such a sort of ideological issue that people have all these theories and they say it's this and it's that. And that's actually very boring. What's interesting is to actually go back to the time and find out what people thought they were doing at the time. Mm -hmm. So really what I wanted to do is to strip away hindsight, strip away any ideological arguments and just go back to the time and see what people were thinking and feeling. And also go back to how I felt when I was hearing the records that I write about, most of them, and hearing the sound of freedom and what that actually meant. So let's talk about why 66 then. It's not, it's not really the start of anything. A number of the bands that will crop up as, as we go through the interview, like the Beatles and the Stones and Dylan, are well established by that. And in fact, that's something you talk about. They're established to the point where they're starting to get bored with what they're doing. So it's not the beginning of those bands. So what is it? What is it about 66? Um, well, it's the, actually, it is the beginning of quite a few things. It's the beginning of, really, the beginning of counterculture. It's the beginning of the spread of drug culture, um, the spread of LSD. It's the beginning of an organised women's movement, particularly in the U- US, It's certainly the beginnings of stirrings in the gay liberation movement, the homophile movement. It's also the year in which the slogan in the civil rights movement, the year the slogan Black Power was coined. It's a year that begins in pop and ends with the very start of rock. So there, in fact, a lot of things begin in that year and a lot of things that we associate with, you know, later on in the decade, like everybody thinks of 67 as the kind of, you know, the summer of love. In fact, the first summer of love happened in 66 in San Francisco and by 67 you're talking about something that's a media event rather than an actual event. Mm -hmm. And you also start to get the start of student protest in America in particular because of the Vietnam War, which is something everybody associates with 68. So in fact, and it also is, as you say, a culmination because it's the moment when that, you know, euphoric wave of 60s pop music starts to change. And a lot of the leading players in white uh, pop music, like Dylan and Stones and the Beatles, start to crash out, get exhausted, start screwing up in various mm-hmm. ways, which I'm sure we can discuss. Um, and also the year when black American music really starts to come through in the States and in the UK as well. And the other key thing to mention here is that it's the first year, or sorry, it's the last year that singles continue to outsell albums. And what Absolutely. you've done in the book, you go through each month of the year and in the main choose a sort of single to kick that off. So yes. let's talk about why the single was um, was sort of taken over at this point. You're starting, well, at the beginning of the year, you've still got until it is the last year that singles become outsell albums. And what happens, there are two things that happen, really. Number one is that you listen to a lot of records this during this year, and there's so much... So many ideas and thoughts and innovations, technical innovations and musical innovation packed into two and a half minutes that a lot of the records sound very compressed. So for ex- a very good example is Good Vibrations, which is a very futuristic record, which went to number one both in the US and the UK. Um, so it's a mainstream hit record. 
and it took six months to make. It took longer than most people took over LPs. So you got an L. You start to get an LPs of mater- worth of material compressed into a single, and so the logical extension, particularly um, the next year, is for people to start making LPs. And again, it's part of this change of pop into rock with the greater seriousness that was attributed to rock and also the greater instrumental expertise. So by the end of the year, you get the first Cream album, for instance, is a very good, which I played recently, is kind of half great and half not so great. But people are starting to make albums which are a whole thing, like Aftermath, um, obviously Blonde on Blonde, obviously Revolver. And also by the end of the year, you also get just you know dozens of greatest hits albums. So it's like an era of being summed up. So you get... Bob Dylan's greatest hits, you get the Rolling Stones' greatest hits, which is High Tide and Green Grass, which is a fantastic record. Um, and you get the Beatles, collection of Beatles oldies, you get the Animals, Manfred Mann, the Kinks having an American hit. So you get all these, it's like an era, everybody understands that that sort of pop era is ending and mm-hmm. we're now going to the year of rock. But it was almost like there's those greatest hits albums would come out every couple of years. One of those bands would, you know, you look at those early albums of the Stones and the Beatles, it's often hard to tell apart which yeah. ones are the, are the actual studio albums and which are collections of greatest hits. And I guess presumably the fact that they were pumping out single after single is what enabled that to happen. Yes, well, you know, the idea was that you'd make three singles a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Stones, I think, had, Rolling Stones had five singles in America in 66, and the Beatles had four, I think. So, yes, it was, it was, it was a frantic pace, and now, you know, some people take a year over a single. So, before we go to look at, well, we'll look at some of the mums and some of the, the issues that started that you highlighted earlier on, we'll, we'll sort of cover, but... A couple of other things to set the context first. So how were people... I want to talk about the music press at this time. How yes. were people finding out about music, both in, in, in the UK and the US? Well, it's a great canard that, you know, there are only a couple of hundred people in Swinging London mm-hmm. and, and it was all an illusion. In fact, it wasn't because, number one, you did have the people who were making the culture, but you also had quite a vast army of young people. You know, you read a lot of accounts, um, you read... Barbara Hulanicki's autobiography, who talks about this. You read Tom Wolfe's Noonday Underground, and it talks about a whole raft of young people moving into central London and they, you know, five to a flat or getting be able to get bedsits because property was still cheap in, in central London and young people could still live in the centre mm. of the city. So, you know, th- there was a recognisable youth tribe in London participating in this culture. And then, of course, you had a, a very fertile and rich music press, which was totally under the radar of the um, mainstream press. And you had uh, Music Weekly's Melody Maker, Record Mirror, Disc Music Echo and New Musical Express, still New Musical Express then. And, you know, you have this music press monomyth, which is all about punk and the enemy. And, in fact, there were so many good writers in the music press at that period, like Penny Valentine and disc on disc and Tony Hall on Record Mirror and um, Derek Taylor in disc and Chris Welch on Melody Maker. And, you know, they were really engaged with what was going on and reporting what was going on at the time. And then you had the monthlies, you had the glossy, um, you had the sort of more fan-oriented publication, sorry, weekly called Fabulous, which had very, you know, great colour pictures. You have you have monthlies like Rave, which is aimed at boys and girls. You have Honey. Um, you have a whole load of teenage romance magazines. So collectively, every month, they must have sold over a million copies. Now, that's not a small, you know, that's a big distribution. And what was happening, the ideas that were coming through London were being pumped out all over the country by these magazines and obviously by... Top of the Pops every week, and also by Ready Steady Go, which was syndicated rather patchily, but still was um, you could view it throughout most of the country. And so, because England's such a Britain's such a centralised media economy, it's a small island. It's quite you know these ideas percolated through the whole country very quickly. Now in America, it was a lot different because it's such a big country; hits take longer to break. Mm-hmm. The regional markets, all that kind of stuff. And uh, a lot of the magazines, like 16 and Tiger Beat, were monthlies, and Teen Beat monthlies. There was a great uh, weekly magazine which turned bi-weekly in '66 uh, in 
uh, the west on the west coast called the Beat K R L A Beat and K Y A Beat, same magazine, different different stations in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and that was weekly. And also in America, you start to get the start of fanzines like Crawl Daddy mm-hmm. and Mojo Navigator, which are the start really of rock writing. It's not Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone didn't start till the autumn of '67, and so Crawl Daddy, which was published by Paul Williams. And Merger Navigator, which was published by Greg Shaw, these were the real pioneers. And this is, I guess, those p- publications were the start of publications. And you mentioned Ready, Steady, Go, which I, I want to bring in later, so we won't talk about that now. But a program that was sort of started on the back of like, the, the the burgeoning music. Whereas yeah. things like Top of the Pops, you know, you'd see the Beatles on Top of the Pops, but you'd also see like Val Dunican or. Or whatever, you yes. know, they were competing with. They weren't. They didn't exist in a vacuum. They existed in this in this world of what the Beatles fans' parents were listening to as well. What every, everybody forgets now, and quite understandably, but now that everything is available on YouTube at the press of a button, the experience of sixties pop music. It wasn't like Austin Powers. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't <laughs> go down the street in an e pipe going high, fabulous with you know nonstop classic sixties hits blaring. You'd be sitting in a room, or you'd be watching television with your parents, and you'd have to sit through four mega dreary records to get to the record you liked and then when you got to the record you liked your parents would probably be saying oh god this is terrible yeah. uh, yes uh, <laughs> you know look, look at their hair and what are they singing can't hear you know so you get all this back chat I actually had to go around to my grandparents to watch Really Steady Go because I just couldn't stand it. And, of course, my grandfather, who's a music fan, totally got it and was quiet and, you know, he really liked the Rolling Stones. But it's that experience of having to sit through five terrible records by Ken Dodd, The Bachelors, Val Dunican, The Seekers. And when you're young, which I was then, I was 12, 13, you know, they just seemed to go on forever. And so then when you heard the record you liked, it was incredibly powerful. This is where I wanted to go next before we we dive into the to, to January of nineteen sixty six. You were thirteen yes. in nineteen sixty six. I turned thirteen, yeah. So what you know, the person that became, you know, one of the preeminent <laughs> rock critics. When did this all start for you? Well, it started uh, you know, I would just say that very few people are obsessed with music. You know, we're in a small minority. Most people just trot off and buy a Dell or whatever the equipment mm-hmm. is, you know. And, and, you know, the really big hits are bought by people who don't particularly like music. It's just a part of the environment, mm-hmm. really. It's like air conditioning hum or something. I was nine, ten when the Beatles hit, and that was it for me, really. So I'm classic baby, baby boomer in that respect. I was born in 53. But I was tuned into it right from the start. And I was brought up in a suburb of London called Ealing, uh, which was a pop environment. The record shop I used to buy records from, Dusty Springfield had worked in, it was called Squires, and it was on Ealing, <laughs> Ealing Broadway. And um, it was very futuristic, it had a sort of spiral staircase, and then you had all this wonderful sort of space-age design. And you'd go. And the first record I bought there was Del Shannon's Little Town Flirt. And then, of course, 63, I turned 10. And, um, you know, it's the start of Top of the Pops, the start of Ready, Steady, Go. Next year, the start of Pirate Radio and the whole British thing happened right in front of me. And I was an avid consumer of it. And so 12, I turned 13 in September 66. I was, for most of the first half of the year, I was busy, on the one hand, trying to please my parents and do well at school. And on the other hand, I was listening to Pirate Radio in my room and uh, dreaming, daydreaming. And I think it's very important to have time and space to dream and I don't think people have so much time to do that now and the the experience of boredom you know we were often bored at that time we weren't distracted we didn't have these bloody hand things in your hand all the time and we didn't have the internet and there was vast expanses of boredom and in a way that was a really good thing because it gave you time and space to think and to to go into yourself and to start beginning to work out who you were, and I was very affected by the records of that year. I've done a compilation CD of records from that year, and it's got records on it that I heard from Pirate Radio, which you wouldn't have heard on the BBC, like James Brown, I Got You, I Feel Good, and um, The Association, Along Comes Mary, which is a fantastic record, and Seven and Seven Years by Love and 96 Tears. And I heard those on Pirate Radio, and they, they had a huge impact on me. And so, in a way, there is, of course, in the book, a disguised autobiography because I was alive at the time. The last book I did, I wasn't alive. It was between 1875 and 1945, so I wasn't alive then. But this one, of course, there is a disguised autobiography, but it is disguised. I don't like too much naked autobiography, and that is a a music writing mode. Mm -hmm. And unless you abstract it or 
disguise it or, you know, use it as fuel. The naked autobiography, I think, is quite tedious. I'm David Stubbs. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's start moving through 1966, and then we'll start with January, as you do, as the year does. There's, I said you you look at each month to begin with, certainly in the book, through yeah. the prism of a song. Although January, it could be The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel, yes. or it could be this song, which I'd never heard of and have not managed to track down and listen to by the Uglies, yes. The Quiet Explosion. Who were they? It's on the compilation CD. I'll have a look in a minute and see what i got one in my bag for you. The Uglies are a group from Birmingham. They were fronted by a man called Steve Gibbons, who later went on to be quite prominent. He was in a band called Balls, who uh, released a fantastic protest record called Fight for, Fight, for Your, Fight for My Country in 1971 with Trevor Burton of The Move. So he's part of that whole <laughs> Birmingham music mafia. And then he later went solo, in fact had a hit called Tulane in, I think, 77, and was very instrumental in helping Birmingham bands like Steel Pulse, <laughs> Um, and is still playing today, so do go and see him, folks, because he's great. And the record is, it's a very strange record. It's the B-side of their third single, and it sounds a bit like the Doctor Who theme. It sounds very weird, and it's quite spooky, and it's called A Quiet Explosion, and it's about the nuclear bomb falling. And the reason I want to start with that record, and Sound of Silence segues into this, is that it basically talks about the nuclear bomb, Mm. and that was the big fear of the period. The big fear now is climate change, terrorism, surveillance. Then it was the nuclear bomb, and, and that was part of the rocket fuel of 60s culture. People don't understand, really, why the 60s happened. They think it's all, you know, jolly swinging London stuff. It happened because a lot of young people thought they were going to die before they made 20 or 25. Mm -hmm. 
because the bomb was going to be dropped. And don't forget, in 61, you'd had the Berlin Wall going up. In 62, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, around the time that this record was released in January, um, there was um, a film by Peter Watkins called The War Game, which was banned by the BBC, and he was struggling to get it released on limited cinema release. And it's the most terrific film I've ever seen. It it shows what happens when a single megaton H-bomb drops on a small city, and it's horrifying. And still, it it has that power today, I think. Well, I I had to re-watch... I saw it when I was 15... And it changed my life. I'd have to go be here if I hadn't seen that film because I just thought everything I'd been taught is wrong. And uh, when I was watching it to do the book, I was on the sofa watching it behind my hands and I had to turn it off every five. I couldn't watch it all the way through. I just had to turn it off and turn it on. So this is a period where I mentioned, obviously, Simon and Garfunkel. So there is this sort of protest folk movement going on as well. I mean, Bob Dylan's in the mix as well. But this is sort of coinciding, as you said, with um, the the war game. But also this is the time when the Older Master marches are going on and CND is being formed as well. Yes. Well, the reason that it's called A Quiet Explosion and Mm. also The Sound of Silence, because there was a conspiracy of silence around the topic of the nuclear bomb. It was the great unmentionable. And that was graphically shown by the fact that Peter Watkins' The War Game was banned by the BBC. And so, you know, the book starts with silence as a theme. And A Quiet Explosion obviously segues into that. Absolutely. And out of, particularly out of CND, which is a very, very interesting story and actually needs a new book on the topic. CND was probably the first example of a dissident and oppositional and um, agitprop British youth culture from 1958 onwards, right the way through the early 60s. Everybody forgets about it now because nobody wants to talk about an oppositional youth culture. We're all supposed to be passive consumers these days. And that was a huge influence, really, on British youth culture. And certainly by 65, 66, you have the existing folk movement, which has become harder and harder. There's a wonderful song from 65 by Mick Softly called The War Drags On, which Donovan also covered. And you started having people like Donovan being pop stars and obviously Dylan comes over in 65 and so the worlds of pop and folk meet which is a very interesting moment in 65 and so 66 is the, is, is the development of that. I want to hurry us on and take us into February. We've already mentioned, obviously, numerous times, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles. They're, they're at a point where, you know, the biggest bands in the world, they've had loads and loads of acclaim. And yet, for both bands, it's not, I guess, really how they thought it was going to be. Well, no. And I think that it's difficult to appreciate how big they were. And um, because, you know, they were, you know, they were bigger than One Direction, really. Um, and One Direction are not hanging around with royalty and aristocrats and things. But also One Direction, again, aren't hanging around because, you know, they've, they've got problems, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Haven't they split up? I think they have split up. So, I'm you know, that's expert. after only about three or four years. It's very hard to live at that level of fame. And really, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were the sort of lab rats for that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, this is the first time that had really happened. Certainly to groups, maybe it happened with Elvis. And Elvis, as we all know, went bonkers. And basically, I mean, the Rolling Stones, I think, certainly Jagger was tougher. But the Beatles were starting to go bonkers. And the Beatles had quite severe problems in uh, in 66. A bit later, which I was going to talk about with the butcher cover and with the Jesus comment. <laughs> but you're starting to get this, which is very interesting, which is sort of expressed in satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction, which is... You've got everything that this society wants, and it's not enough. Mm-hmm. And that's a very interesting thing for pop stars to express. And the Beatles were kind of expressing that as well, really, with songs like The Word, um, which is a drug song. And, you know, it, it start, the, suddenly, out of this consumerist pop culture, which a couple of years before you were getting, you know, She Loves You, which is a great record, but it's She Loves You, you know, mm-hmm. From Me to You, very, very simple, I Want to Be Your Man. Um, very, very simple messages about usually about personal relationships. You're starting to get this critical, sophisticated, you know, these very quite sort of dissident, uh, sour messages. And you see that elsewhere as well in the other bands that are forming at that time or performing at that time. So you look particularly at the 
the Kinks and the Who, both who were sort of, you know, wedged into the sort of mod movement that was going on, but both certainly who were writing clever, critical lyrics. Well, that's sort of, that's disguised autobiography because in, in before I was obsessed with Along Comes Mary and Walking My Cat Named Dog, I was obsessed with Substitute. <laughs> And, um, you know, these are quite, I mean, there's some fantastic lines in Substitute. The simple things you see are all complicated. That's an amazing line. Totally amazing line. I was born with a plastic spoon in my mouth. Totally amazing line. And there's another one, The Yardbird Shapes of Things, which is another mm-hmm. totally amazing record. And The Kinks, dedicated follower of fashion. Um, and, you know, these are pretty sophisticated records that are commenting on aspects of life and but sort of self-satirizing as well, which is self-satirizing, but also psychological, and that's very important actually. So you're talking about something that has depth and that is trying to also address how people feel, which again is very different from the usual romantic tropes, which are what they are—they're just tropes. Moving us up to March now. Here's a great illustration of what we said earlier about how the music that the kids liked was coinciding with not just stuff that their parents liked, but here's here's a, a sort of reassertion of conservative right. Really, the single you choose to to start off March with is Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler's "The Battle," "The Ballad of the Green Berets." It could be "The Battle of the Green Berets" <laughs> yeah, as well. "The Ballad uh, of the Green Berets." Oh God, it's unlistenable. Honestly, <laughs> it's absolutely awful. I mean, I had to listen to it quite carefully for the book but it really is dire it was the biggest selling single in America in 66 what does that tell you number one for six weeks poor American teens had to sit through that for six weeks and more probably well again it's very important for me in the book you know to avoid it just simply being swinging London yeah great yeah 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 Um, to have a dialectic to have clashing opposites and obviously one of the big areas in which the American adults, government, the establishment were organising around was Vietnam. And it gave a very visceral element to American culture because suddenly you've got 15, 16, 17-year-olds realising that they could be drafted. And, you know, there are so many sort of young American white rock bands um, that members get drafted and they have to split up during 66. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a magazine done by a friend of mine called Mike Stacks called Ugly Things and, you know, you read the detailed interviews with, I don't know, sort of teen groups like, you know, the, from California or from the Midwest and everything is going swimmingly and then in September 66 somebody gets drafted and that's the end of the band. So it was very real and very immediate. And, of course, it was a question of patriotism. And so to say that you're against the Vietnam War meant that you were a traitor. Mm -hmm. And so it was all very visceral and very, very polarizing. And it's one of the things that started to that started to tear America apart. And America was a very, very divided society. It was very mad in 1966, not just because of Vietnam, but also because of civil rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And also because of this increasingly oppositional youth culture. And thank God, you know, in the UK, thank God for a Labour government and Harold Wilson, who refused President Johnson's request to send British troops to Vietnam. Otherwise, we'd have been involved. And as an 18-year-old, and I was 18, turned 18 in 71, I could have been drafted. So thank you, Harold Wilson. It's interesting to see how that sort of culture war plays out in the pop charts, in that there would be a patriotic song racing up the charts and then an anti-Vietnam song, which would then be answered by uh, almost a sort of like patriotic parody version of those songs. Well, it, it goes to the point that I'm making, which is that pop music, you know, still in our society, pop music is undervalued and it's thought of being a bit trivial, really. And what I'm saying in the book very forcibly is that pop music was part of life in 1966. It was indivisible from life. It was life. So it's a really, it's, to me, it's a powerful statement, which I made in the book, which is to say, this is happening in the world, this is reflected in pop music, mm-hmm. which it was. And so that's a very important point to me. And um, in fact, of course, Ballad of the Green Beret was the high spot, probably, mm-hmm. of no other Vietnam, pro-Vietnam record went to number one like that. It was probably the high spot of American support for the Vietnam War, because obviously, during 1966, the amount of people going over to... Southeast Asia went up and the body bags started coming and people suddenly started to realise, you know, this is actually really serious. There's one of the band, before we finish on March, I just wanted to, to briefly mention because they, it's an interesting complication on that sort of equation we just talked about, which is a band called The Monks. Yes. 
Yes. So tell us who they were and what they did. Well, the monks only released records in Germany. They were a bunch of GIs who were posted in Germany and they decided to stay on and form a band called the Torquies. And they played, you know, probably played, you know, in the midnight hour and that kind of stuff. And then in late 65, they got new managers who were sort of molded them a bit like a sort of punk rock group and say, you know, why didn't you um, all have the same look? And they decided to call themselves a monk. And then they had monks, very short hair with monks' tonsures, which is, a, you know, very short hair around the sides and a ball and a shade bit on top. And they looked quite threatening. And they started to make these really uh, harsh kind of offbeat records. They do sound quite German, actually. It's very, very tight and stiff with very aggressive lyrics. One, one of those songs was called I Hate You, which is pretty punk. And um, they had Monk Time was a song about Vietnam <laughs> and was actually based on an argument within the group about whether the, America should be in Vietnam or not. And they, um, one of the members, Eddie Shaw, wrote a wonderful memoir, Black Monk Time, which I highly recommend. Um, and he talks about playing Monk Time in uh, Germany. And this GI comes up afterwards and said, I've served in Vietnam. And what are you doing playing this song? And they get into a huge row and they're really mortified because, you know, art has come up against real life. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to John Savage about his new book, 1966, The Year the Decade Exploded. And well, we're not quite halfway through the year yet, John, so we'll, we'll rush well, on. Quarter we're, of the year. Quarter of the year. We're at April. <laughs> um, Third of the year. We're still in springtime. <laughs> Something I think is, I mean, it's certainly indivisible from the obviously the pop music but vietnam that we've just been talking about is that you know the rise of lsd and you know the rise of the drug culture which starts off at this time as well and i want to talk i want you to tell me very briefly about the third eye first of all the book yeah interesting character and then that's the song that you um that you, you kick this one off with yes well the third eye you know is an interesting concept it's actually based on a part of the brain called the pineal gland which i think you know is concerned serotonin and was also thought um there's a lot of discussion about what it was is also thought to reside between the eyes so it's a you know there's a there's a lot of you know Madame Blavatsky writes about it and the secret doctrine and so there's a whole history, and anyway in the late fifties this man called Cyril Hoskin changed his name to Lobsang Rampa and wrote this book called The Third Eye about being a inductee of a Tibetan lamasery L L A M A S E R Y so you become an adept. Alama by going through this initiation ceremony. An initiation ceremony actually corresponds to trepanation, where you put something, put something. There's an, you know, something inserted into your skull, which gives you extra perception. Lobsang was a huge success. Then Lobsang Rampa was exposed as, as uh, Cyril. Cyril. As Cyril. But the weird thing is, you know, there are there are stranger things in reality, and actually the book felt quite authentic. So who know what happened? He claimed that the soul of a Tibetan monk had transmigrated into him. But then recently you've got Dylan claiming that, you know, (laughs) somebody who was killed in a motorcycle accident transmigrated into his body. So who knows? Anyway, it became quite a popular trope in psychedelic imagery. There was a band called the 13th Floor Elevators who Mm -hmm. had a business card which had a picture of the third eye in a triangle. And then Dylan talked about the third eye in his record. Can you, um, he's got a third eye, can you use it in, can you please crawl out of your window, which was released in early 66. And then this group called the Dovers released a record called the third eye in April 1966, at almost exactly the same time as the birds eight miles high. And it sounds quite similar. Mm-hmm. But the birds were much better musicians and they're more skilled communicators. So they didn't, they cloaked the description of a trip in imagery about their visit to London. Yeah, a little year. trip. Yeah. But, you know, what I like about the Dover's record, which is extraordinary, is that it's very raw, it's quite threatening, and you really get the sense, almost an unfiltered sense, of what experiencing LSD was like if you're an American teen in 1966. It's a wonderful record. And at this point in history, LSD is still legal, ostensibly. It's illegal to take, not necessarily illegal to distribute. But there begins like a... There's a definite clampdown of the authorities on pop stars, basically, at this point, for taking drugs. Well, it begins. The first... um, Basically, the authorities begin to wake up as to what's going on. And what's happened in 60s pop culture is that, you know, the youth has got away with a hell of a lot um, because then pop music was just for kids. Adults didn't really understand what was going on. So that's very interesting. They got away with it. And then suddenly adults started (laughs) to wake up to the fact that uh, there were drug messages, there were anti-war messages, there were all sorts of messages that they didn't approve of coming into the charts. And so one of the first big drug busts was um, Donovan in... I think it's early July 66. It's either June or early July 66. And also in April, two songs are targeted by the Bill Drake Report, which is a major American sort of clearinghouse for top 40 radio information. And uh, they were eight miles high by the birds and and, and Dylan's um, Rainy Day Women, numbers 12 and 35, Everybody Must Get Stoned. And then you get a big piece in Time magazine about drug lyrics and suddenly it's an issue. And so adults are waking up. LSD becomes illegal in, um, you know, later on in the year in both America and the UK. So what's going on is there's, you know, there's drug culture starting. We've got, as you said, the sort of first summer of love is happening. So the concepts of free love are starting to be in the air as well. Um, The pill is suddenly available. And what we start to see is 
the sort of, sort of nascent feminist movement. But I think we can look back on that nascent feminist movement as almost a a reaction to those movements because all of that stuff was sort of great for men, not so great for women. Like even the fact that, you know, suddenly there was a, an easy form of contraception so everybody could be just be sleeping around was a thing that was great for men. Well, I think that's to an extent ahistorical. I don't think women felt like that in 66. They should have done. And certainly many commentators have felt so since, but I don't think that was necessarily a conception mm-hmm. then. I think that, all, you know, it's very strange. You look at Mick Jagger singing Under My Thumb, mm. which is a pretty, you know, it's actually, you know, it makes, it's a wonderful record, but it makes it hard, very, very hard, to, you know, really, you really notice it now and it's, it's not pleasant. No, there's a whole string of Stokes records which are really unpleasant. Uh, Stupid Girl, that's another one. And they're playing it on Really Steady Go and the young women are going crazy. So they're not, you know, A plus B doesn't equal C. They missed it, yes. So I think that women, certainly in pop music, were groping towards the sense that they were marginalised and that they were underprivileged. And certainly somebody like Dusty Springfield, who sought to be in control of her music and in control of her material, found things very difficult. And she's a key figure, not just because she was very successful. She sought to present herself as a musician. And she did She did have control over the sound of her records, considerable control over the sound of her records. And she was greatly resented for that. And so she had two quite big struggles. And she was also, when she was scheduled to play South Africa, and in her contract she stipulated that she was going to play to mixed audiences. And then... When they turned around and said, well, too bad, you know, we're going to play to segregated audience, she said, right, I'm not playing goodbye. And there was a huge fuss. And so the word, it was very interesting to reconstruct because the word feminism actually was not in general use in 66. Mm-hmm. There was a, a sort of founding manifesto um, written by two civil rights workers, Casey Hayden and uh, Mary King. And in her autobiography called um, A Kind of Men- Memo, Sex and Caste, C-A-S-T-E, um, and in her autobiography, Mary King says she was groping around for a word to describe what would later be called feminism, but the word actually wasn't in use. So it's just before that moment. And then later on in the year, you have the National Organization of Women formed in America by Feminine Mystique, by Betty, uh, Betty, Betty Friedman, Friedman. From the feminine, who wrote the Feminine Mystique, which is a founding feminist document, was involved in. I wanted to get us on to the, the experience of, of the women that were making the pop music. That's where I wanted, wanted to go with this. You've already sort of started on that. There was, so this is an era where there was, without looking at figures, it almost seems like there was more girl groups, more female performers than, than there has been you know, in, in more modern time. I don't know about that. I think that there was the girl group wave in the sort of 62, 60, 60, 61, 62, 63 onwards, and that was fantastic. Um, that has sort of died out after... Don't forget, the Beatles switched everything back mm-hmm. to male groups, and women were supposed to be consumers, and actually it was hard for female pop performers because, you know, there was such a vast teenage, female teenage audience that it was hard for them, you know, they weren't attracting boys, they weren't attracting, you know, the same number of boys, and so they had to sort of be the girl next door or this or that. It was quite hard for them, which is what sort of Sandy Shaw and Cilla Black did. And mm-hmm. Dusty was different because she was slightly older and also, you know, really consummate musician and vocal performer. Um, you had the Shangri-Las in America who were very popular and a wonderful group um, and they gave a kind of authenticity to teenage melodramas mm-hmm. which, um, you know, they're wonderful records but it, you know, it, it, was, it was hard for... And Dusty, in fact, says this. She said it's hard for female performers. Male performers often have autof- automatic hits. We don't. Every record, we have to stand and fall by every record. And you look at the chart positions and that's true. You kick this chapter off looking at a, a record, um, Walking My Cat Named Dog, which I'd never heard of, but I've really come to like since I've been listening to it while reading this book, um, by an artist called Norma Taniga. And that's her, you know, her experience um, she writes about, talks about being on tour with oh, yes. basically just you know, oh, yeah. loads of men. Yes. Yeah, she... Um, Norma's a very interesting figure that that record is a wonderful record i was uh, that was the record i was obsessed with after after um substitute and i think at the same time i was obsessed with hey girl by the small faces and that was a power radio record it wasn't it was sort of went to number 20 in the uk maybe, but it was one of those records that make people s- sit up and listen 
And um, she was just a folky. And then uh, this producer um, who produced uh, Mitch Ryden and, and the Detroit Reels put a sort of sound picture around her with a, with a kind of go-go break. And um, she had a hit record, was sent out on tour, the only female performer in a whole bunch of guys. And she said she just found it horrific. Not because they hit on her or anything. It was just there were no... She was the only woman there, and there were no facilities for her, and it was just really rough. And then she came to the UK, and she met Dusty Springfield, and they started a relationship. So we're at the halfway point of the year, June. So, um, yeah, let's let's dive into June. I was going to perhaps skip a couple of months, but we'll, we'll do June. Um, the song being Nico's I'll Be Your Mirror. And this is in this chapter you look at the you know the sort of Andy Warhol the factory and and the Velvet Underground and that sort of New York art scene. So let's have a look at you know that point where pop culture, pop art clashed. Well, yes, and I mean the whole thing about Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground really was that they were hired as a group to perform in a discotheque, which was going to be a multimedia environment, and that never quite happened. So what Warhol did was to take the multimedia environment out on the road as the exploding plastic inevitable. And the idea of total environments was very much in the air, and this is very much an aspect of 1966, which is a lot of different media coming together and the idea of the now being fantastically important. So it's a mixture, it's a complete collision of high art and popular art and of sculpture and of film and of lighting, and of environment. You know, it's a very powerful idea. And this is Warhol's activity in early 1966, having decided to, quote-unquote, to give up painting, which he does in 65. And Warhol, of course, the chapter, although it's quite a lot about the Velvet Underground, is really centred on Warhol. And it's based on um, some research I did quite a long time ago, and I went to the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh and went through Andy Warhol's time capsules from that year. And Warhol just kept everything and then threw a couple of months' worth of material into a box and left it. And so in the box you had all Time magazine about murders and youth crimes and anything, any clippings to do with Warhol mixed in with Velvet Underground contracts and teen magazines and gay porn magazines and you know catalogues for leather clothes and bills from cinema hire companies for, for projection, you know, all this sort of stuff. And so it's fascinating. You've got a sense of... 1966, as seen through the eyes of Andy Warhol, who was probably the mo- you know he's at, at his peak as a popular artist and a mass artist. And so yes, you had the idea of pop art, you had the idea of op art, and the Velvet Underground are playing in the middle of this complete milestrom of, you know, three or four slide projectors and three or four movie cameras and dancers and strobes and a whole environment really. There's obviously already been, you know, this idea of pop culture, but this is the point where I think it's really, it's all really cemented there, do you think? Well, yes. Um, I mean, it's pop art becomes pop culture becomes pop art. Um, It's great, really. Um, It's a sort of total modernist moment, and it can't last because it's so compressed and it's so, you know, it's like you could hold everything in your hands for a short moment and then everything unravels. And that's really what happened to a lot of people in 1966. And it seemed to be important to try and hold all the threads together. Warhol tries it, the Beatles try it, Brian Wilson tries it, and it all slips out of their hands because it's all too much. And this is the year when it all becomes too much. One, two, three. One, two, three.
I'm Andrew Muller. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com. I'm going to skip over July because I want to get us to Joe Meek, who is uh, the sort of hero of um, of August um, and the again the sort of putative rise of something that will become a, a gay rights movement. So, but let's talk about Meek. Well, Meek by 1966 was in a bit of a mess. He's he was gay and it was still illegal. This is very important. Um, homosexuality was only partially decriminalised in 1977. So he was le- it was legal for him to be gay. He was blackmailed. He was beaten up. He had a bad court case going on where all his royalties from Telstar were frozen. He was taking pills. He was into the occult. He wasn't in good shape. But he made this wonderful record with the Tornadoes, um, the last single they ever released, actually. On the B-side was a single called Do You Come Here Often, which begins as a kind of burlesque-type Hammond instrumental. And then after two minutes, you get these two rather camp voices chatting, and it's a sort of slice of life from a gay bar. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that anybody had done this in the UK on a major label, and probably done it in the UK anyway. And so... And it was deliberate. Jeremy knew, knew what he was doing. And so it was a major gay statement at a time when there were very, very few. And so I used that as a trigger to really go into the status of what was then called a homophile movement, the early gay liberation movement in 66, because, again, going back to this general theme of freedom, which is also in the last chapter, which is the civil, in chapter 7, which we've slightly skipped over, which is the civil rights mm-hmm. chapter. And the civil rights is the engine of all these freedom movements because there are explicit links between civil rights and the start of the feminist movement because everybody just, and the start of the gay liberation movement because everybody thinks, well, they're doing it, why can't we? And so in Britain, the gay movement, the homophile movement is all about getting the 1967 Act through Parliament so there's actually a chance that the law can be changed. In America, it's all about local activism and a different kind of culture, small magazines, which you don't really get in the UK, a lot of them, uh, physique magazines, you know, porn magazines. And it's also the start of the first penis that was sold. You, you could somebody, A picture of somebody with a penis was in a magazine called Butch in late 65. And you start to get all this agenda with the soft porn of you know, we have a right to be here just as much as anybody else. What's wrong with the new naked human body? So you start to get all this freedom agenda in the middle of all this soft porn. It's a very, very strange time. But it's the start, yes, it's very much the start of... And in fact, in August 66, there's the first sort of modern gay riot in San Francisco by a bunch of uh, trans people and um, hustlers and what were called hair fairies who were young men who wore very, very tight clothes, slacks coming halfway up their calves, slingbacks, mohair sweaters, furry mo- sort of alpaca sweaters, and then they tease their hair up into a sort of beehive and wear makeup. So they're called hair fairies. And they protested about the way they were being treated at a popular cafeteria in San Francisco called Compton's. And there was a riot and the police were called and they attacked the police and it was a big deal. So, And also at the same time, there was um, a gay magazine set up in San Francisco called Vanguard, which I got a few copies of, which is completely riveting, it was set up by street kids through a local church, street kids and hustlers. And so you suddenly get these voices coming up that had never been heard before. And that's very much a feature of the year. Now, we are rapidly running out of time. We've only <laughs> got about six minutes left. So I want to use <laughs> September, really, to kick us off towards the end of the year. And there is this, there's this moment in the September chapter, which you've already hinted at earlier on, which is the Beatles basically are on tour in America and they upset a lot of people. And that basically really is the end of the Beatles as a touring band. Yes. So mention that moment, but then let's basically kick off that, use that moment to, to sort of rush us towards the sort of conclusion of the book, really, the rest of the year. Because the book changes tone slightly at yes. this point yeah. as well, towards the end. Is yes, that's deliberate. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying, with the, dis- with the disappearance of the Beatles, they fly back to Heathrow on September the 1st from the disastrous American tour. It's not very good. It's, it's, uh, and they, you know, that's it. They don't want to tour again. And then that's what you did. And so they disappear from the stage, and that's seen as the end of an era. Mm-hmm. You know, definitely, people were talking about it in that way at the time. It's not just retrospective. And so suddenly, this modernist, pop modernist time that we've been talking about fragments. And you get a lot of oldies records. You start to get, 
you know, instead of everything being this forward-looking, credible drive, you suddenly get sort of 1920s pastiches mm-hmm. like the... Winchester Cathedral. Winchester Cathedral. And you also get uh, distant drums by, um, you know, between September and the end of the year, there are only something like three or four number ones in mm-hmm. the UK. Um, and in America, there are seven or eight or nine. So suddenly there's distant drums... I think it's two wonderful records, Richard, I'll Be There, and Good Vibrations, and then Green, Green, Grass of Home for seven weeks. And so everything slows down, everything changes. But at the same time, what I do in the book, I use the love song, Seven and Seven, as as a pivot, because what happens in the love song is that everything accelerates, accelerates, and then suddenly there's this explosion at the end. We should say this this is obviously Arthur Lee's love, not um, a love song. (laughs) Absolutely. Arthur Lee's love, this wonderful multiracial L.A. group. So And so I use that explosion to fragment the structure of the book slightly. So most of the previous chapters have had single one single yeah. theme. Now the themes start to overlap, and the themes from previous parts in the book, like the war or LSD or the bomb, start to come in, and so you're getting a multi-layered narrative during the last three or four chapters. And really the climate, and you also get the narrative of the adults pushing back against this youth culture. So particularly in the UK, the government starts to wind up the power radio stations. Mm -hmm. In the US... There's what's called the Republican resurgence, which is actually the start of the new right. Ronald Reagan gets elected as governor of California in 1966, November. And then a few days after he's elected, there's a concerted police crackdown on probably the teen location at the time, which is the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. And they rush up and down and throw a bunch of 60-year-old, defenseless 60-year-old kids into... You know, they attack them, put them in police vans and take them off down to the police station just because they're on the street. And there then ensues six or seven weeks of weekend rioting called the Sunset Strip Riots, which is the first major kind of pure youth cultural clash with the authorities and a harbinger of things to come in the next few years. One final question then. So, I mean, all through the interview, we've looked at 1966 as the start of something, the end of something. Of all of the songs that you choose, which one would be the one that you'd think was, I don't know, to signify what is going to come next, to sort of what's the one that's going to have the most sort of influence. I'm immediately thinking Good Vibrations myself, because as you said, it's such a... Uh, it's such well, a, Good Vibrations is... The interesting thing about Good Vibrations is that in a way it's a kind of peak. It is, you know, the, with the great race that was going on between the Beatles and the Stones and the Birds and the Beach Boys, this was the summit. And it was a summit because it was also, not only was it totally innovative and maybe Strawberry Fields beat it, innovativeness, but it was number one in a way that Strawberry Fields wasn't. That was, mm-hmm. This was a huge record and it was designed to be positive. That was the most important thing. And there were a lot of quite harsh negative records in 1966 and Good Vibrations was meant to change the course of popular culture into something positive and loving. And, of course, this happens uh, the next year with the Summer of Love. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, Good Vibrations sets the tone of the year to come, even though, of course, Brian Wilson never quite reached that peak again, although I really do like Heroes and Villains, but it's not the same kind of record as, as, as Good Vibrations. So I think it would be Good Vibrations, yes. <laughs> I've been talking to John Savage. We've been talking about his book 1966, The Year the Decade Exploded, which is out now from Faber and Faber. So, John, thank you so much for telling me about it. It's been wonderful. Thank you too. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism, and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.